wait to bad news. <laughs> Bring it up there, Herbert, please. Bring it up now, Herbert Pig. All right, time now. What important announcement. Thank you. That was an important announcement, accompanied by bugles and trumpets. I want you to listen carefully to this sound. Will you please listen to this, Herbert? Please. Hear that? <laughs> Hear that sound? My God, that's the sound of pure ego. You're listening to me thumping on the absolute first copy of my new book, which has just arrived this afternoon, and I'm in a total state of euphoria. I want to tell you, friends, there is no feeling, no feeling in the world, quite possibly with the exception of giving birth to sextuplets, no, no feeling in the world that makes you feel like holding in your hand the book, a book, solid, thick, solid, hear that? that you have worked on for three years. And it just came in. And the title is Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. Produced by Doubleday. And man, if you want to get yourself a first edition copy, you better go as soon as you can and ask for them at the bookstore. I mean it. Comes out September 1. What a great feeling. Look at that. It's got pages in it. What? You know... Pages. And you know, you get a sense of, of yeah, you get a, a curious sense of remoteness to it. When you see your own stuff with the dust jacket that's got all kinds of binding and everything that, suddenly you become very respectful of it. In fact, I opened it up and I read three lines. And I started to laugh and I says, I wish to hell I'd written that. <laughs> So, bring it up, Herb. Bring, bring. So, once again, another horse has been entered into the vast cultural handicapped sweepstakes of the 20th century. Galloping on and on and on over the jumps as fast as they come. Number seven on the OT betting, OTB betting board. Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. Jay Shepard up. <laughs> yeah, hi. Thank you, thank you. I'll tell you, it's a groovy feeling. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's funny about people. You know, it's, uh, uh, ever since, uh, In God We Trust, which was, uh, actually my second book, ever since In God We Trust, uh, people have been, uh, don't write to me. You know, people keep writing to the writer for some reason or other and asking him to send them books, which is something I never knew people did until I, you know, until a few years back when I began to really work seriously in writing. And I never realized this was a common, a common, uh, curious public uh, misconception. Yeah, in fact, I was talking to my editor the other day, and he says, oh, that's nothing. He said, uh, he said, uh, double day, of course, they've had a lot of, famous writers of one kind or another in their house and he said once in a while one of them would come in purple with rage see and uh, it's what's the matter with you uh, Byron 
And he'd say, what advice? I just received a letter from somebody who says, please send me one of your books and uh, I will send you a check. He says, I am not a bookseller, I am an author. <laughs> That's like, you know, that's like stopping uh, stopping uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein on the street and saying, say, listen, uh, can you sell me a ticket to your concert tonight? But uh, anyway, it's a great feeling. And uh, and if you're, uh, you know, I, I've received some. And the only reason I'm doing this on the air tonight, for one reason, this is not to plug a book or anything, but uh, I have received quite possibly a thousand letters in the past three or four months from people who have asked about this information. I can't write letters. I, I, there's just we've got no way to do it. And so I'm trying to answer it on the air. That uh, No, people who've asked and said when and where and what the name of the book and so forth and so on is concerned, apparently they've read hints about it in the newspapers. It has been reviewed in uh, Publishers Weekly and uh, what's that other, other the, the Kirkus... Virginia Kirkus Service, and then there was another one, too, Publishers Weekly, and uh, I think it's the Library Guide has reviewed it. So these are all trade reviews that are sent out to booksellers and, and uh, people like librarians and so on. And apparently the word has gotten out, so people are writing and asking, and I can say that it will be officially published September 1st. Uh, that's the official pub date. Now, most books are shipped out. I guess they're already shipping them out to the stores. But most books are shipped out uh, maybe two or three weeks before the pub date. The pub date really is just a date that has to do with reviewers and so forth. However, uh, in answer to the question, don't write to Doubleday or don't write to me. Go to your local bookstore and simply tell them that you'd like to, you know, put in an order for the thing if you are interested in it. And uh, tell them it was published by Doubleday. And the title, don't again write in and say, what was the title? I was in the John. Uh, the title is <laughs> Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters. There it is. Beautiful. It's a great feeling. You know, I throw it down, you know, I throw it down next to the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know. <laughs> I'm pleased. And I'm also pleased to note, uh, this is uh, something I, I suppose I shouldn't even mention, but I'm going to mention it, that... Um, when the galleys came out of immediately after galleys, there were a lot of things about book, uh, about writing and authorship that people don't know. I've discovered this in my own uh, circle of friends. They're close, you know, even close friends are not aware of it. I remember one time uh, talking to uh, Norman Mailer, who I used to uh, see somewhat a few years back, and Mailer said, uh, he says, don't count on any close friends of yours or people around you to ever read anything you write. He said, knowing an author personally makes people think he can't write. <laughs> That's true. He says, he, he's quite sure that the that guys who live next door to Mickey Mantle felt, ah, for crying out loud, what was he? I just, ah, ah. But uh, anyway, uh, which brings up an interesting point about writing and, and uh, book authorship, especially when you deal with fiction. See, I, my my work is in the in the field of fiction, largely, unless I'm writing for, say, a car and driver in which it's more of the essay form but when you're dealing in fiction people tend to confuse the writer with the characters in his fiction Somerset Maugham one time wrote a great essay on that he said that that after his books would come out and a lot of them were couched in the first person if you know anything about Somerset Maugham you know that many of his books were written in the first person the I form and uh, he said that uh, 
uh, he, he'd go to parties, and he said he has been uh, asked at parties when he stopped being a, uh, a murderer. They felt very sorry for him because, he, because one of his characters was a murderer. <laughs> In other words, everything you write, people tend to think it, it, it relates specifically and, and totally to you. And, and that's really the, the difference between uh, autobiography and fiction. Fiction, uh, all, all, all fiction really is semi-autobiographical. There's no question about it. A guy can only write out of his experiences and the things he's seen. And he, he, he projects his imagination into what he's seen and written and uh but he uses he hangs it on a on a on a framework of life experience uh, no matter who he is really this is a fact that you 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 can only know of human beings by what you've known of human beings you can't you can't write out of reading about human beings you have to experience human beings and uh, so ultimately fiction is taking your life experiences not specific incidents in your life but imagining experiences that could have happened given a set of circumstances with the people that you have run into and characters that you know all put into a sort of an amalgam form. In short, uh, I'm sure that, that Herman Melville didn't know uh, a nutty captain named Captain Ahab who spent his life chasing a white whale and stumping on the quarterdeck, but he did know uh, sea captains like that, and he probably did hear about uh, incidents where guys got... Uh, hung up on getting this one specific whale that, <laughs> that eluded them for years. And so uh, fiction and, and reportage are very, uh, very intermingled. And the more you write your fiction uh, sticking uh, to, uh, I suppose you might say, life reality rather than experience reality, the more your creatures are alive in your book and, and understandable, the more you, you tend, more, more people tend to think what it is is reporting. I'm sure that a lot of people who read, say, for example, Salinger's Catcher in the Ride, you ever read it, Herb? Uh, actually believe that there was a Holden Caulfield. There really was a Holden Caulfield, and it was J.D. Salinger. You know? <laughs> and and, and uh, in a way, that's a compliment. In another way, it can be a real drag because they're not giving you credit for creating things out of your imagination. But uh, another thing, too, people don't, don't realize that, that when you write a book, it's like... Uh, it's like uh, going through a gestation period, really. I've heard it described that way many times. It's quite true that, that uh, this book, this particular collection here, which is Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories, uh, was about three years in, in work and preparation. And after about uh, two and a half years, you tend to become fatigued. Uh, <laughs> you, you really do. You tend to become uh, it, it, it's uh, difficult at, at that point, and that's I suppose the most uh, the key point at which you you decide whether you're actually going to go, go through with it or not. And then all of a sudden it's all over, and then then when it it's in your hands, like today, this I'm not kidding you. This is the first time I've seen this thing. It's a, it's a, like a new baby or something in my hands. I'm looking at this thing curiously. See. Well, it's a strange experience, and there's no way to describe the experience. I hope I'm not boring you about this. It's uh, something that not many writers talk about, and and, uh, and and you never get used to it. Now, this is my third book uh, that could be called a, a, a really serious book. There was uh, George Age's America, The America of George Age, which was published by Putnam. And then there was uh, In God We Trust, All of Us Pay Cash, and now this, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. Now... Each experience, though, is even more so. I mean, curiously enough. In other words, you, you, you never get used to getting a new book in your hands that you've written. 
I'm sure this is also true of P.G. Woodhouse, who has written about 158 books. He probably gets excited every time he gets one in his hands. This is W.O.R. New York. And uh, one other thing, too. Are you curious about the details of an author's life? Like, uh, when I'm talking about somebody. Now, we're not, now, there's a big difference. Now, must I say right here that that in writing, there's a big difference between what the publishing industry calls the non-book and the book. In other words, a non-book is often a uh, how-to-make-money-in-spite-of-not-caring by uh, Phyllis Diller. Uh, see, this is a... Yeah, this is a this is a, a non-book, which has just turned out. It's a, it's like a hit record. It's turned out like a, like popcorn. It's a celebrity book in a sense. In fact, in a real sense, it's what it's it's based on. Uh, a book, on the other hand, is is a is a work of uh, is a work of of uh, writing uh, that takes a long time and involves uh, intrinsic values and so forth that have nothing to do with the person who wrote it specifically. And so that's a very different process. But when, when a book, when you, when you signed a contract, maybe you're not aware of this, when a, contra- when a book is signed for, when the writer is signed for a contract, in the contract it even specifies how many free books he gets. Now that, that probably surprises a lot of people, that, that uh, in, 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 no matter who he is, he may be William Faulkner, he may be Thomas, uh, Thomas Mann, he may be, uh, you name it, you know, uh, whoever it might be, he may be... Uh, uh, he may be uh, any any author you care to name. In the contract, it's always specified how many free books he gets. Now, how many do you think he would get? There's a standard, as a matter of fact, that's traditional. Well, do you tell Herb how many it is, Lee? That's right. That is the standard number of books that all authors get when their book is finally published. Six, in case you're curious. And... Uh, now, and, and another thing that all writers find out is that immediately when his book is published, all of his friends, there may be yeah, even just guys that run the elevator who don't even know your name, they expect you to come in and give them a free book. <laughs> in spite of the fact, of course, that the author has to buy these books from the publisher. Did you know that? When he, when he gives out any of these things, he has to buy them just like anybody else. And uh, so that's all part of the, the uh, curious mystique of writing. And in general, uh, in general, an author, when he gets his book his, in his hand, this, this new book that he's got in his hand, what he does with it, with the six copies he gets, and incidentally, he does not get those six copies until pub date, which means that he gets one. Usually they send him one on the day that the first run comes off the presses, just like what I got today. It's like it's here at last. The editor gets one, he gets one, uh, and a few other people in the publishing company get one, maybe the president or something, whoever's involved in the thing. And then, after that, he gets no more of these copies until the pub date. And then he uh, a package arrives with his other five. And uh, what he usually does with those, of course, is that he keeps a couple for himself. And, you know, ironically enough, uh, I, I, I have to honestly say, I don't have a copy of the hardcover edition of In God We Trust. No, now isn't that irony? It, it, for several reasons. One, it was stolen. <laughs> Somebody stole it out of out of uh, my my bookshelf in the in the office there, and uh, so I don't have a copy, a hardcover copy. And here's the irony of it all: is that anybody who bought the hardcover copy of In God We Trust uh, made a pretty good investment because today any book find company will charge you 
around between seventeen and twenty dollars now for that on the book fine. Yeah, it's it's. A, I'm talking about first edition, the first edition, and the the other editions uh, are no less than ten. <laughs> that's correct. Now, what what makes a book do that? Well, that's one of the mysteries. It's uh, there's a lot of uh, things. The rarity of the book, the number, the people who you know, the amount of people who want to read it, and so forth. Now, uh, I, I I suspect the same will happen with this because this the first edition does that. And you know that there are people who who have a standing order with all publishers. This may surprise you who buy a large block of first editions of everything they publish. Because, you know, uh, if you had done that in, let's say, uh, the days when Dickens was being published, you'd be worth a couple of dollars. Uh, and it's not only just being worth a couple of dollars. People like to collect first editions. They just like to have it. And uh, that's, that's uh, <laughs> you know, one of the subsidiary things about it. So I don't want to bore you about this, but it's, it's just uh, very interesting to me. And uh, I never cease to be interested in it. And uh, now, for example... When when we were doing the final design work, you know, you know that of course maybe maybe you don't know maybe most people don't know that there is a man in every major publisher house, in fact several men, but let's just say a man in this case who actually designs the book. He design he doesn't write it, he doesn't edit it or anything. He designs how the book is going to look. Now I'll give you an example of that here. Now you'll notice the color. See this is it's it's bound it's, it's bound in in a dark red. Uh, it's bound in a dark red, and the back of the book is bound in in, in, a, in a in a sort of an Oxford gray, blackish Oxford gray, with gold imprint on the back. The size, the type, and you notice these the, the red inner linings here. Uh, these are all decisions that this guy makes very carefully. It, it, uh, you never think of those things, do you? And it's a it's it's a it's a very involving the size of the page, the kind of type. Uh, the 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 uh, here now for example this opening here you see there's an opening page the the title page how's the title page going to look are they just going to put it the title inside just in black type or are they going to do this which which has got uh, a curious kind of uh, Aubrey Beardsley type drawing inside of it and so working with a with a uh, you work with the designer this is after the book has already been written it's already now in galleys it's already been uh, proofread. And now we're doing other things. So the book is designed, and, and the author is called in and asked, you know, his opinion on what, what he would like to see in the book and so forth. And depending on whether he's been writing much for this author, this for this publisher or not, he's given more or less say. And so since this is, uh, I have a long-term contract with Doubleday, and this is my second major book for them, I had a lot to say about it, except not really. Ultimately, they, the designer is his own artist, and so he reads the book, and it's a nice-looking book, you see. He designed this. Yeah, it is a beautiful book. Now, and, and he goes unna unnamed. They give him no credit. There's no credit in the bottom, unless I think, yes, down here at the bottom. Now, here's another man. Now, the dust jacket, which is what you see in the bookstore, you know, the jacket that goes on it, which is the paper jacket, this is another whole field of design. He's another guy. He, he, he doesn't even involve himself with designing the book. He designs the jacket. And so he decides the the, uh, the author picture that's going to go on the back. Most pictures, you know, most books have a picture of the author in the back. And uh, he designs, he decides what kind of a design and color and what kind of paper and everything else the front jacket is going to be. Then, he doesn't draw it or anything. Then an artist comes. He gets a, the artist 
who then executes that design. <laughs> it's very wild. For, so, for example, a man named Bill Gregory at Doubleday designed this jacket. However, he didn't draw the jacket. The jacket was drawn by a guy who did some line drawings in the book itself. And uh, he does a lot of work for the New Yorker. What's that? All right, his name is Raymond Davison. I don't know what you're saying. You go ba 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 ba. What's that mean? I don't know what you mean. Wait. So we're going to get we're being corrected again. Yes. No, no, you're wrong. He drew this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> see you're wrong again, honey. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, Raymond uh, Davidson did the, the drawing. Well, then after after all of that is done, see, there's a lot of arguments back and forth about this thing, and then finally, uh, the book goes into production, and it's turned over to the factory, uh, which is where the book is actually built. You know, they have to build the book, book binders, uh, uh, guys who, who make covers, and guys who print and linotype and the whole business. And uh, when a book is set, it's, it's really set then. There's no way to change your book at that point. No way. Uh, you know, you could discover a horrendous misprint in it, uh, which, uh, which could cause, uh, you know, $500,000 billion in lawsuits. It could... <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. It goes, it's in the machine. It goes through the machine. And uh, when it goes through the machine, it's through the machine. <laughs> That's all there is to it. And uh, it's it's a it's a pretty interesting it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the 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 reaction to any book is is subjective. Uh, uh, you never know really uh, when you when you stand in front of a book rack. You never know why you buy a book unless you specifically know the author and you know what you want. The impact of the color design and everything of the book. Uh, causes you to pick it up and look at it. Uh, all kinds of subtleties involved. But uh, this uh, this is a uh, this is a curious phenomenon. Do any of you have any questions? Uh, um, no, I, it's it's rare that uh, that the people uh, no. If you have any questions, you have any questions about publishing a book? How how long does it take? Uh, for example, from the time you finish the the manuscript to the time it arrives as a book. Normally. From the time the manuscript is done, you've finished your manuscript, and it's ready to go. You're, you're absolutely done with it now. You've, you've rewritten whatever you had to rewrite. You edit whatever you've rewritten. You know, every, every, all writing done is done. Um, then at that point, from that point on, roughly, it's about nine months, symbolically enough. <laughs> it's about nine months, give or take a couple of days, from the time that the book is... And, of course, one of the major decisions on a book is what time of year it is to be published. Did you know that? Yes. As a matter of fact, most publishers have what they call a spring list and a fall list. And when, they, when the decisions are made, they're made on, on roughly this basis, that the fall list is generally considered by publishers to be their more heavyweight books. Now that doesn't that applies. I'm, that doesn't imply any value judgment. It, it's it more. In other words, it's the book that there's more involved in. It's it's more of a heavyweight book. That the that the spring list, on the other hand, is a list which is generally complied. For, it, it's built for summer reading. People people will buy a book to take on vacation and so on. That's a very different uh, set of books. And so, well before the book is actually in your hand and published and built. That is one of the major decisions, and and that goes on. That argument goes on for months, you know, as to what month, what specific day, 
and uh, where, uh, how it'll be published, and so forth. So uh, the decision to publish this on September of 1971 was a decision that was made about a year ago. After much uh, memo passing around in Doubleday, they finally hit on this particular date. Uh, now, uh, there are other decisions that, that go into uh, into a book, and, and I'm not particularly familiar with a lot of the details. For example, the, the, the decision that's made as to what the original run of a book is, how many they actually make in the first edition. Well, that's generally uh, decided upon by the success or non-success of the previous book of the writer. Now, a book can be a success and not sell in many uh, editors' uh, circles. In other words, it's an artistic success. It got great reviews, but for one reason or another, it didn't necessarily take off in sales. Uh, on the other hand, other books are quite the opposite. You probably know many books which uh, got panned by the critics but sold four billion of them and wound up in the movies with <laughs> God playing the leading role. Well, that's another kind of book. Uh, now, in the... Uh, in the, in the case of, of uh, this book, what is, what is the original? I don't know what the original run is on this. I, I didn't even ask uh, my editor about it. But it's considerably more than the first run of In God We Trust. Uh, that is, the original run is. Now, In God We Trust went into ten editions. Ten. That's correct. Which is considered uh, very high in, in book publishing circles. So, naturally, that affected the attitude towards this next book. It's, uh, it's just, a, you know, it's a general attitude. Uh, did, did any of you have any questions? I mean, really, seriously. Or forever holds your peace. Well, uh, one of the questions I suspect that, that, that people have uh, always ask is, is how is it decided that a book is going to be published? In other words, who makes a decision at a publishing house? Well, that's done by a board. And so when, when a, a manuscript is read, they have readers in most uh, publishing houses, which are obviously are designed to weed out uh, bad stuff. Everybody thinks he can write a book, and, and uh, unfortunately, everybody tries, ultimately. So uh, their first job is to weed out endless numbers of, uh, you know, the first readers. Well, then, after that, it goes to another set of people until ultimately it reaches the editorial stage where an editor, a real official editor, will take this guy's manuscript and he will read it. And if he thinks it's got sufficient value, because you see, a publishing house can only publish so many books a year, and that's an important step they're making. They're really investing a lot in this thing. So they, they then, he will say, he will write on this thing, well, uh, I think we ought to do it, at which point... The, uh, the editorial board will sit down and they'll pass it around and they'll read this thing and they finally come to a consensus opinion. I think we ought to do it. At which point, the author is then called in and, and uh, then, then the work starts. Then he may have to rewrite. They may have the suggestions. They may not uh, like this, the way that the book didn't have enough uh, life in the second half, whatever it might be. And then he works from that point. Uh, in the case, however, of an author who has written for a publisher before, now, that's an original author we're talking about, a new one, see. Um, generally, when he writes a book for a publishing house, they have an option clause in his contract, which means that he owes them another book. In other words, the first book, since they are going to publish your book, the second book must go to them, too. In other words, if you're going to write a book, obviously most people who are serious writers are going to write more than one book. So... Uh, the option clause is that you send your next book into them. 
Well, they already know you can write or they wouldn't have published the first one. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. So then the question really is, do we like what his second book is like? You know, what, is, it, is it what we, uh, in short, uh, is, it, is it up to his standard? Is it, is it, is it good? And that's about all <coughs> the decision really is. They've already decided they like you. So uh, in the case of a... Now, uh, you, you've heard probably from time to time that a, that a writer will change publishers. Well, this is done for a number of reasons. And one, uh, some, many reasons, like guys changing jobs. I mean, some guys get mad and leave. Other guys uh, uh, get a better deal. Well, one of a number of things. But in general, most writers tend to stay with the same publisher. Now, if you publish something that's completely odd, do you have a, you have a question in there, somebody there? Uh, most people who publish a book that, say, is way out of their ordinary line, another publisher may pick it up and do it, which is something else. In fact, I have a contract with another publisher for another kind of book completely, which I've been working on which does not conflict with Doubleday, since they don't publish that type of... It happens to be a technical book, by the way, <laughs> in case you're curious, on ham radio, incidentally. So, uh, uh, this... Uh, oh, do we have a ding-dong in there? Speaking of commercials, hit the button. Palisades has a ride, Palisades has a fun. Come on over, show some dancing or free, so the parking, so gee. Come on over. Palisades from coast to coast, where a dime buys the most. Palisades amusement park swings all day and after dark. Ride the coaster, get cool in the waves and the pool, you'll have fun. So come on over. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, uh, let's see, we have palisades. Oh, yeah. You got another one? Hit it. Oh, How many different ways can people express surprise? Well. Oh. Hey, there's more. Can you beat that? Ah, now that does it. These are only some of the reactions you get when you serve Michelob. Because Michelob is the one beer so good people don't expect it. Bring all the unexpected There we go. <laughs> I could have had one of those beers right now. <laughs> oh well, I, I now now I won't mention this from here on in. The only reason I'm doing it tonight is because it's in uh, it, to kind of partially answer uh, hundreds and hundreds of letters which have come in about this very subject in the past couple of years. And well, one more thing too, uh, for some reason which I can't quite. Uh, well, I can't quite fathom it, really. Uh, almost all published writers are constantly besieged by people who would like to write. Uh, <laughs> and they send manuscripts to these writers, for some reason or other, with the idea being, of course, that uh, this writer can get their work published. Now, uh, <laughs> and, and that's, a, that's a very sad thing. They, they do it to all writers, and, and all writers I know get these manuscripts and I'm certainly no exception and I have one rule all I do is, is, is with it, without even looking at them without even opening them up they're all automatically returned and uh, you just you just got to do that because uh, there's a lot of a lot of involvements a lot of complications and of course it isn't up to a writer it's like it's like writing a letter to uh, 
to uh, Tom Seaver and telling him you want to play on the Mets. Uh, he, he can't do much about it, and I doubt whether he's interested in doing anything about it, one way or the other. But uh, in the case of uh, of uh, particularly magazine writers are constantly harassed by this. You know, that's another thing, too. I, I suspect that most people uh, don't really know much about the mechanics of writing. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll, well, I know most people don't because it's a very it's a field that's rarely discussed. When you when you hear, when you see a writer on uh, on a TV show, see. And by the way, September first, I'm about to start on one of these big tours that writers go on, where they go different parts of the country and are interviewed about their book and so forth. And this is a legitimate thing. It's about the only way that people can find out about books these days. But uh, rarely do they get asked questions about writing itself. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll ask him a question about the, who's going to do the movie, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But rarely does anybody say, "Well, now let's take that short story, uh, this particular short story, X." Um, how did you get the original idea for it, and uh, did you did you discard the idea and then come back to it? Uh, how long did you actually work on it? Did did the, did the first rush of creativity that caused you to write this idea? Did it sustain it and did you have to go back again and rewrite it? And then did it take a tire in an entirely different form? Now, you know, this is uh, something I find fascinating within myself and I can't explain it. That many times I will start writing a short story and don't make the mistake of calling my work in Playboy articles. An article is a very different thing from a short story. An article is about, say, for example, uh, somebody will write a piece on... Uh, uh, the 1971 cars. That's an article. Uh, but uh, my my work is is uh, is in the fiction department, and it's a very different breed of cat. And so uh, I, I I have uh, I guess all writers. It's just a more probably like sex. It's a very personal thing. All writers uh, have their own way of uh, doing things, and they can't explain it either. But I can tell you this, that I will, when I start writing a short story, I think it out completely. I don't write a word until I think out the beginning, the middle, and the end. <laughs> in, in short, I don't just sit down and ad-lib. Um, and I don't do this on a radio show either, in case you're curious. But uh, if, uh, if I start writing the story, I have it in my mind now. It's, it's well organized in my mind. The beginning, the middle, the end, uh, incidents that will occur in the story. And then I begin writing it. Every time, without exception, a very short time after I begin to write the story, it begins to take a very different tack than I had imagined it would take. And the characters begin to do these things. Now, I've heard, I used to hear that years ago when I was in school before I did any serious writing, you know, about the character suddenly assuming a life of its own and going off and doing stuff in a guy's book, and he doesn't know how to handle it. Well, that's exactly what happens. Uh, in in actuality, and it's an eerie feeling. In fact, when you're when you're when you begin to work on a short story, sometimes when you're deeply involved in the actual process of working on a short story, you uh, you tend to, to you're you're amused, you're amazed, you're bugged. Sometimes you're very irritated at at something that a, a, a character persists in doing. He assumes a, a character then, in other words, that you hadn't automatically thought of him doing. What's the matter, hon? You see, it's okay. All right. So uh, that, this uh, this is uh, something you can't you can't talk about. And I suppose on a, on a Johnny Carson show or a Merv Griffin show, 
a discussion like this, since it's not obviously full of yaks, would not be brought up. Uh, another uh, another aspect of, of writing, sometimes you'll get so deeply involved in, in writing this story that you can't break your head out of it. You, you, you find yourself in the story and the reality of your life around you tends to become uh, shadowy and hazy. Now, I know many writers have had this experience, and you know, and that's a good feeling, because you know when you've got this feeling, you're, you're deeply in it, and you know that it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's right. Now, another thing that happens with a writer, that there's, a, there's such a thing as, as, I suppose you can say, automatic writing. Now, when you say automatic writing, you, you write a line which comes out of you without much thought. Maybe it's a natural line, that some, something that it's just like, like a fingerprint or something. It comes out of you. And after the line is written or the idea is written or the, the scene is written, six or seven months later, when you read the thing, when it's being published, you're, not, you're, you're surprised and you don't recognize the fact that you have written this thing. Oh, that's an odd thing. <laughs> I've had people come up to me and quote long chapter and verse of, say, In God We Trust to Me. A guy will come up and he's, he's, he's committed it to memory. And I can't remember it. I can't remember writing this. He says, well, you mean you don't? And then he gets disillusioned, see, because uh, uh, he, he thinks then uh, something's wrong if you, if you don't remember these, these things you wrote. Uh, not realizing that once you've written a thing, you move on to the next thing, and that thing has captured your mind. So the process of, of writing is very different from the process of reading. And uh, they, they really don't have much in common. You know, that that's another thing I, I have to say, and I guess that this would surprise a lot of people, that readers are readers. I mean, they read. Writers are writers. They write. Now, that means, really, that writers don't read much. Now, most readers would like to think that writers sit around and read other guys' books continually. <laughs> not so. Uh, most, reader, most writers simply do not read. In fact, I remember one time uh, uh, talking to a, a friend of mine who was a really fine writer, and, I, and we got on the subject. He said, he hasn't, written, he hasn't read a book in ten years. Well, he was, he's writing books. Uh, you don't think that, uh, that say, uh, Tom Seaver on his day off goes to ball games. Uh, he, because he's a player. See, he's not, a, he's not a, a, a fan. He's a player. That doesn't mean he doesn't like baseball. But he thinks of baseball in terms of playing it. I think of writing in terms of writing, not, not reading. Now, um, yeah, I don't know what's so uproarious in there tonight, but it's very dis distracting. Whatever it is, it's, it's really working. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, uh, the process of, of writing is a mysterious one. Oh, she wants to tell me what is uproarious in there. Yes. Yes, dear. A lady called up and says, I forgot what I wanted to ask him and hung up. Well, that's a typical listener. Uh, I, I'd, uh, you know, could carry it even further. Uh, that's also true of, of uh, performing. You know, uh, I constantly get letters from people who assume that when I'm not performing, I'm listening to the radio. <laughs> that's the last thing I want to do. In fact, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how much that is true, that I don't even listen to my own shows after I've done them, sometimes when I'm on tape. I happen to be very live tonight, but I don't listen to, to my own shows. 
uh, I had to be almost forced to watch my television shows. Because once I finish something, I really have finished with it. And I don't want to have, I don't want to be reminded of it because it tends to distract me from what I'm trying to do now. And any time you watch yourself or hear yourself, you're obviously listening to something you've done. It's the past. Uh, so, uh, I, and again, I, I get letters from people who ask me, you know, oh, when you were a kid, you must have listened to the radio. I never listened to the radio when I was a kid. I was not a radio listener. I was a second baseman. In, in other words, I think there are two kinds of kids anyway from the very beginning of life. There are kids who are spectators and there are kids who are doers. And that carries on later into, you know, into adult life. And spectators tend to sit by radios and listen, or they tend to sit by TV sets and watch, or they tend to, they tend to stand in lines at cinema too. In fact, they even get so complex, some of them become the spectators in sex. They spend all their lives watching Danish educational movies. And uh, <laughs> I've never had to go to movies. <laughs> and I've never, I've never, <laughs> that's right. So there's a difference between doing and sitting watching. Big difference. And uh, don't confuse the two. You know, it's, uh, it's just, uh, and there's no onus connected with either, actually. They're just different processes. So uh, excuse me while I get out my good luck bells. Do you mind? I always carry these around. These are my good luck bells, friends. I mean, you never know. You get, In these days, man, you got to use everything. I'm rattling my good luck bells over my new book. Oh, in the hawker, Greek of the conk. Give it the good horns. Give it the good horns. <laughs> yeah. So, so instead of sitting down and calling and writing, I'll give you the title again. It's Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. And don't let the guy at the bookstore give you any noise. It's published by Doubleday, and it's open for business September 1. Bring it up, baby. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's up to my knickers. Uh, this is W.O.R.